the face of my enemy. I see my brother. I see my brother. When I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother. I see my Hey, welcome to the Third Wave Podcast, where we explore the implications of a Jesus-centered theology. I'm your host, Christopher Whitmer, and on the Skype line, I've got Titus Kipfer. What is up? And here with me in Los Angeles, I've got my brother, Asher Whitmer. Hey, hey. And all the way from Tennessee, we've got Reagan Schrock joining us. Yes, it's it's a long ways away, but it is actually, there, there are actually people who live there. <laughs> I forgot to mention that uh, Titus is actually from Virginia, Charlotte, Charlottesville, Charlottesville, Virginia, Charlottesville, Virginia. Well, welcome back to episode two of the Third Way Podcast. This is very exciting. Um, we uh, last time we we left off at we were talking about Romans thirteen and government and Christian anarchism and. We're opening all kinds of worms, and um, so we thought we would save that for this episode. So we kind of wanted to jump back just a little bit and talk about more the theology behind the third way and where we get it. So, so we're talking about the third way. We're talking about um, G- Jesus and, and the way of Jesus and wanting to, to um, you know, follow, not, not get stuck in the polar sides of debates of of culture, of politics, but to actually follow Jesus and, and what that looks like. Um, but this, like, like we, like we mentioned, this isn't just stuff we're pulling out of our hats. Um, this is grounded and rooted in, we feel in the Bible. And that's, um, very important to us. We, we look to scripture as our guide. Um, we don't just make things up and we don't just listen to what culture is saying and be like, Oh, we want to be that way, but we actually want to look in scripture. What did Jesus teach? What did he preach? And we actually, I think, I think all of us would agree that we approach scripture, um, from what could be said as like a, a Jesus centric approach, which I mean, every, I think most evangelicals, most Christians are going to say they do that as well. But, but we really want to see what, like, what does it actually look like to take theology and to take scripture and look at it from the perspective of it's all about Jesus and to center the whole thing around Jesus. Um, so a, a lot of, a lot of this, um, is kind of born out of Matthew five and we take Matthew five or, or the sermon on the Mount, um, as a whole, we take it literally. We, we believe that it's, it's for here and now when Jesus said, to turn the other cheek. We believe he meant that Christians are supposed to turn the other cheek. Instead of slapping the person who slapped you back, you're supposed to turn to him the other also and allow him to slap you on the other cheek as well. Um, and this can, this can be, yeah, th- th- this creates all kinds of questions and dynamics. And, um, so that's what we're here to talk about. Um, I don't know if you guys had anything to add to that or not. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, would have one comment, maybe just because I don't know if this is OCD in me or not, but um, th- like we're not saying that we just stick to the words of Jesus, like the red letters of Jesus, but rather we we're going to explore Romans thirteen 
from the sure. posture of Jesus, like first through Jesus, what is Jesus's teaching and how, what is Paul saying? Because we believe that Paul is consistent with Jesus, not contradictory mm-hmm. to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a good clarification. Before we get to Romans 13, I wanted to bring up a kind of an infamous problem that, that people often run into, um, and especially if they're arguing against um, radical love or nonviolence um, or non-resistance, whatever term you want to put to it, um, is the example in Luke 22 where Jesus talks about, tells tells the disciples to take with them a sword um, and and the disciples say, hey, we have two swords here and Jesus says, that's enough. Kind of a summary of, of what happened. Um, I don't know if you guys had anything to comment about that before we get, because we're going to talk about Romans 13 and about the government being instituted by God to punish evil and and obviously the military is a part of government and so what is the christian's relationship with military what is the christian's relationship with with the use of force and um whatnot so yeah one of my favorite leaders jerry falwell jr uh sarcasm there for those who don't know me well he he famously quoted this passage when he was defending his remarks at liberty university about you know using guns on on muslims and uh, if you don't mind, Christopher, I'll just read the whole passage, um, Luke yeah, twenty two thirty five. Sure. And he said to them, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. And then verse 37 is, is what I really want to focus on. And the, the first word, now I'm not a Greek scholar, um, but, but the first word is gar. I think I'm pronouncing that right, uh, translated into English, at least in this translation, as for. And it's a participle that assigns the reason. So he's telling them to sell their, their coat and, and buy a sword. And then he uses this, this participle to, to give the reason why they're supposed to do that. They're probably thinking, you know, why are we supposed to get a sword? You're, you're teaching us to love our enemies. Um, but verse 37 says, For I tell you that, that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. So I would say in the text itself, is given the the clear reason why they were supposed to get one or two swords is so that there would actually be a reason to arrest Jesus as a as a lawbreaker and clearly they weren't going to try to fight against the Roman army with two swords you know when he said that two swords is enough it's it's clearly not enough to actually defend themselves so there had to be another reason. I think the reason is given right in the text. Um, but but even if you if you don't have a good way of explaining it, which I think this is a decent way to explain it, I think it's always important to explain the less clear scriptures by the more clear scriptures and to build our theology on what the majority of the New Testament says, not on these you know anomalies. So and 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 then I would also say you know finish the story, <laughs> you know when when they used that sword when Peter used that sword what did Jesus say he said put that down and he healed the person you know like Regan is always talking about actually proactively loving people Jesus proactively moved to heal the person 
and told Peter that th- those who take the sword will die by the sword. Um, so that's that's the way I look at it. I don't know, you know, how you guys interpret it, but that's kind of the way I look at that passage. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't, I don't think. Go ahead, Asher. No. Well, I was just um, looking at Dwight Gingrich has an essay on this passage. I'm not sure. I was trying to find. I thought he had a full essay. I can only find the introduction right now. But um, like after reading Fight, which I would have grown up in Anabaptist world, and Fight, written by Preston Sprinkle, who's from comes from the Protestant world, was perhaps the best exegetical defense for a a nonviolent ethic. That's that's what he uses a Christian case for nonviolence. Um, we in our last episode we discussed potential problems with that terminology as well. But I really enjoyed the book Fight because it, it explained exegetically, like from Scripture, why why we have this position of non-resistance or non-violence. Um, and to this passage, he basically, he, he discussed a few different options, but he basically concluded that it was to fulfill the prophecy which is given so so that he would be numbered. Um, anyways, Dwight is kind of pushing against that. That that's maybe not the strongest interpretation, but rather that um, he it was more a metaphor for dangerous times. Jesus told his disciples to buy swords, but didn't want them to actually buy or use them. He was speaking figuratively about dangerous times to come. And um, I just throw this in here as as a resource, primarily. I thought the, the whole essay was online, but I can't find it right now. So maybe somebody has more information about that. But we can put that in the show notes for anyone who wants to look that up further a common interpretation of that passage that you hear among american christians is that oh see jesus promotes self-defense because he has them take take itself take two swords but most i as far as i know there is not even even a scholar that would support violence does not see that passage as a as a defense for Mm. self-defense because it's exegetical, I mean, it's just horrible Bible study methods to conclude that. Reagan, do you have any thoughts? There, there, there's numerous interpretations of that, but I think the context is is the key there. Um, very clearly, Jesus says later, you yeah. know, put away your sword. This, this isn't, this isn't what I meant. You know, Peter, what's wrong with you? You know, basically, yeah. Peter, like, knock it off. You, you know better than this. I've taught you better than this. Um, if you take up the sword, you'll die by the sword. There's no clause in there that says, well, put away your sword unless it's self-defense or, you know, it, there's none of that. It, it, he's very, very clear. And he even says later when he's on trial, he's like, you know, if my kingdom was of this world, my, my servants would fight. You know, they were probably yeah. wondering why his apostles didn't try to defend him. Well, he said that that's why it's not a, like my servants don't fight. Um yeah, it just it doesn't really fit with the rest of what we see in surrounding passages to interpret that to mean, oh, okay, that gives us license to go buy guns and shoot people. Um 
that it doesn't really make sense. And there, there's numerous ways you can try to explain what Jesus is getting at there. I think you guys have hit on some good things. Um, and I don't know all the details of this. But I think there there is an essay on it. I, uh, one of my friends, Jay Smith, um, he's a Bible scholar from England. And his interpretation is the, the word for sword there more refers to like a 12 inch long knife, um, which theoretically, yeah, you could say that's a dagger, but it was more of a multi-use tool um, that just the average person on the street would have had. They would have used it for even like meals because they didn't have utensils. So they would use their knife to cut bread or meat or whatever. Um, they would use it for, you know, even if, if you had an orchard, like pruning your trees, it was a pretty universal thing that people carried. And so it wasn't even Jesus asking for that. It, it's not even really a sword. And, and for the disciples to think, oh, he means for us to take on the Roman Empire with these things is just kind of ludicrous. Um, that doesn't perfectly explain why Jesus even said it to begin with. But I think it's important to have that cultural context of when, when we think of sword, we think of a, you know, a weapon for killing people. And that's not necessarily the instrument Jesus is referring to. That would kind of go along with verse 35 when he's talking about, you know, the sort of things that anyone would need for regular existence, like a money belt and a bag and sandals and, um, you know, hey, throw in a, a, a sword. Um, so that I never thought of that explanation before, but it kind of goes along with the previous verses. Yeah, and, and I would want to look into that a little more before I would definitively say this is what jesus was doing but um it just that seems to fit way better than yeah like what we see in the rest of that story just does not fit if we think of it as a as a military weapon were you gonna say something asher yeah i don't know if it's that big of a deal or not but like uh just to talk um titus i think it was talked about the weight of scripture and We've all been talking about the context of scripture, and I wonder if it would be like the. So we looked at Luke twenty-two and how this isn't really like it's not. We're taking one little verse to put forth that oh Jesus is okay with us having a weapon of self-defense or a weapon of whatever, and I think Reagan was talking about how that probably was a tool more than a weapon. Oh. But then, like Jesus, Matthew 5 is not just a random, loving your enemies is not just a random verse. Like, to compare, somehow yeah. paint the picture of what we're comparing. Because you look at Matthew 5 and it starts, you know, he starts with the Beatitudes. It's kind of like, whoa, what does all that mean? Well, then he comes back to salt and light that we as people on this earth, made in the image of God, are to be salt and light. And then Christ fulfills the law. He's not just getting away, rid of the law. And you're supposed to, you're not even supposed to relax any of this. And then he goes into like all these heart issues like anger and lust. And then how that affects your relationships. And then he talks about retaliation. And the whole thing of retaliation leads into how we relate with our enemies. Is that your baby? Uh, Titus. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should give him back to my wife. <laughs> no, that's that's good. <laughs> Sounds good. Oh, <laughs> um, so like this picture of again, just kind of showing. I guess what I was thinking in my mind was showing 
from scripture, like how Jesus is not just like randomly spewing out these novel things, but he is developing a whole framework for viewing life and how we, um, his, his command to love our enemies comes right in the middle of how we respond in retaliation. Maybe that's kind of backing up to our first episode a little bit, but I was just looking at that as we were talking. No, that's good. So, so basically, I think for all of us, we could say that kind of what we're trying to get at um, and kind of the core of our theology about, you know, violence and um, retaliation and whatnot, it, um, obviously we're not, we're not, yeah, we're not, I'm not saying that we're talking about, I'm not encompassing all of our theology, but just specifically politics, violence, everything we're talking about on the third way, um, kind of comes down to the fact that we believe that the kingdom of God is not brought about through force. Um, yeah. And it's not brought about even through politics, um, primarily. And, and immediately, you know, a bunch of questions are going to come up, I'm sure, for a lot of our listeners. Um, and, and we're going to get into all of that about um, the Christian's relationship with politics. And we're going to talk about that, that answer. But basically, we're saying that to use violence against another human being, to use force or, or coercion, um, is not God's way. It's not Jesus's will for his kingdom, for his, his followers. Um, am I, am I kind of summarizing it well for you guys? Yeah, yeah. I think that, I think that responding to enemies with love is the foundation of why we kind of have a third way position on pretty much every other issue. I think it's so foundational. Um, and that also ties into why we think we're part of a different kingdom because, you know, there's no physical kingdoms that operate that way. Yeah. And, and we, we kind of talked about that some in the last episode. Um, if listeners want to go back and listen to that one about the whole idea that, that, Jesus is building a nation. He's building a kingdom. And in many ways, yeah, yeah, in many ways, it, it stands in direct contrast and even opposition to the kingdoms of this world at time. I mean, yeah, in many, many times, um, it ends up contradicting the kingdom. But yeah, but we don't bring that kingdom, yeah, through coercion, through violence. Um, so, so then the kind of, kind of the natural question then is, is, leads us to talking about government. Um, and what is the Christian's relationship in government? And, you know, we live in a republic, um, a democratic republic where our voice as citizens, you know, we have an opportunity to affect politics, to, to use power as it were to bring about um reform you know and you know i think the famous examples are you know william wilberforce who was a devout christian who also pursued a life of politics to overturn um the slave trade in england and and eventually brought about the abol abolition of slavery as a whole um and and you could look at um, 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Nazi Germany who, who fought, um, actively resisted Hitler, even was a part of an attempt to assassinate Hitler. Um, and his, his famous example of that, that if a drunk was driving down a street and there were women and children in the way, he, you know, he would do whatever it takes to wrestle the wheel from the drunk, even if it meant killing the drunk so that he could save the women and children and the, the greater, um, good. Or you could look at Martin Luther King, who brought about, who was very active in, in resisting the politics, the power at the time, um, and used politics to bring about reform for the, um, for, for his, his fellow black citizens and for, um, racial inequality. And, um, and so what do we do with that? We're saying that the kingdom of God is not brought about through political power and through force. Um, because I mean, at the end of the day, politics rides, the power of politics rides on the power of the military, on the power of the force. If there's no military where you can say, if you break this law, I'm going to throw you in prison or I'm going to take your house or I'm going to put you into slavery, then a politician has no power. So yeah, let's talk about that. And obviously this is going to get into Romans 13 and like our interpretations of Romans 13 and, and what that means and kind of hearkening back to, um, Titus, Titus's infamous belief in Christian anarchism. What, what is, what is the Christian's role, especially in, in a country where we have the option to participate in politics and to have a certain amount of influence? Yeah. yeah. What is the Christian's role in, in, in relating to government. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I have a couple thoughts and then I'll let Titus talk. <laughs> oh boy. One thought. And what the reason I say a couple thoughts is they actually kind of contradict each other. I'll, I'll just talk about <laughs> where I'm at and the conflict I face. Um, one, first off, the, the position that I'm at is, that um it's actually a little um uh what's the word for it it's it's not a strong argument to look at it just oh we're we're we can vote we have political power and so somehow things are different so the bible wasn't addressing a time w like it is for america so what would paul and jesus have said if they lived in america um there's several flaws with that but even just your what that says of the way you're interpreting scripture. Um, but one of the big flaws is that Rome was actually a, like you could have voted. If you were a Roman citizen, you could have voted. Now, obviously when, when it got to the time of Caesar, it was pretty clearly a dictatorship anymore. And a lot of that was kind of whatever, but there would have been certainly because you have Corinth. Well, I mean, there's, there's some debate over what, was Corinth was that primarily Roman or whatever. But um a lot of these cities that Paul would have worked in would have most certainly had Roman citizens a part of Paul himself says he's a Roman citizen. Yet we have absolutely no teaching anywhere in Scripture that would indicate or point to Paul or Jesus trying to reform the political party. And and what do we do with um, 
let's look at countries that are run by dictators now. What do we do as Americans when we're going to try to help them out? We, it's not like, oh, it's run as a dictatorship, so bummer, there's nothing we can do. No, we go and we try to, to, um, get them freed from that dictator and set up a democracy so that they could vote. If that was the same, using that same logic, surely, like, if that's what Paul and Peter were actually supportive of, they would have done that. They would have rallied people together and, and tried to somehow overthrow the government. So it's a little bit of a straw man or, I don't know if that's the right word. It's just not even, I don't think we're being entirely accurate to history to say that somehow it's so different today than it was there, that that's why Paul and Peter and Jesus never addressed it. And then we're talking about God. So if God, if God's way was going to be to reform government, like we've somehow concluded that it, that's how we should do it here in America, if that's how God's way was going to be, he would have sent Jesus through the dictator line, right? Like he would have sent him so that he could be in a position to reform government. But instead he sent him the lowly of lowlies and he's, he's nowhere in line for political power. He's seen as a rebellion as someone controversy. So like to have an argument that we should be Christians should be involved in politics because, um, that somehow Things are different because of the times we live in compared to the times of the Bible and all that. I think it's just, I don't know. I, it's not super compelling to me. Um, and then also we're talking about God. If that was God's way, he would have done it that way. But here's the thing that the second thought that I have that kind of brings conflict to me is situations like you said, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, William Wilberforce. Or even, like, I have friends, I have friends from Asia, friends from India, friends from Iran who come to America because they're safe in America. Like, I see on Facebook different people talking about how, oh, we should set up, say, it would be best if they can find a safe place in their country close by or close by to their country or same side of the world, but a free country. And the reality is, no, like, there are immigrants in Thailand that are not safe in Thailand. Like they're, they're not, they're safer, but they're not gonna, the, the problem with Thailand is Thailand doesn't give them any, uh, economic, like you're, you're basically trapped. Um, the UN will get you to Thailand, but you can't, you can't really even get a job, a good job. You can't buy property or anything like that. And so people come to America. Because it's free, it's nice, it's prosperous, but that's not just it. Like, when you're fleeing for your life from a hostile country, they're not going to stop at the borders coming after your country. What gives America or Canada or Great Britain safety is because they have a strong military. They're not going to let another military come in. But when there's people fleeing ac across border lines, in a genocide situation or in a whatever, they don't, I mean, history tells us they don't stop at the borders. So it's not like, oh, you're in a free border now. The reason they don't come and try to kill Americans or kill the people that flee to America is, for one thing, we're on the other side of the world. So it's so far away. But then we have a military that's going to defend itself. And so that brings a lot of conflict 
to me, and I just, I, it, I say that theoretically, like as I ponder this deeply, it doesn't actually, because I, I believe that we as Christians are supposed to be willing to lay down our lives. Like it's not about all just being safe. The goal is not safety. And, and that's really easy for me to say as a white American man who's not in a hostile country. But right. I just say that to point out to our friends who are very political, very Republican, who want the borders closed and people to whatever. It's, no, the reason, I don't know if that, is that making sense? But like, yeah, the, the thing, if we're like the, even the power that I have as a Christian to go to Asia and to be on the powerful side of discipling and to bring safety and healing and peace is because I'm from a country that has a strong military. If like my friends, my Christian friends who are from Pakistan and fleeing for their lives, they don't have that same power to go to the Middle East or to go to another country because they have no political backing. Does that make sense? So that, I mean, that, that's just something that I kind of like. Yeah. Those are things we have to process in our theology. It's easy to kind of spout yeah. out what we believe. Titus or Reagan, you guys have any, any thoughts? Well, um, kind of coming back to what you said originally, I would see a difference between what Martin Luther King and even Gandhi did and, you know, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer was trying to do. Um, now, I'm, I'm not saying that everything that MLK or Gandhi did was right. Of course, Gandhi wasn't even a Christian, but I would see that sort of political engagement very differently from um, a political engagement that embraces the use of, of violent force. Um, but but kind of speaking to what you said, Asher, uh, this kind of came up when I was talking to one of my atheist friends who is also a veteran, and I was, you know, kind of arguing for uh, radical love as we, I think we should come up with a term and always use it. Yeah. <laughs> Rad I was advocating radical love, aka non-resistance, non-violence, pacifism. <laughs> and and he he was saying that he's glad that I can have that position. That means that people like him have done his job. And uh, I commented back and I was like, actually, I don't need you to protect <laughs> me from the ability to lay down my life for my enemies. That would be my highest honor. And so when people say wow. that that without the government, you know, we we couldn't be send out missionaries or or you know, we're the only reason we're able to sit here and have this podcast conversation is cuz the military was doing its job. I'm like, no, that that's not how it works. Like we're we're talking on this podcast about loving our enemies and if if the US military didn't defend me from Russia or whatever and I had to die in order to love my enemy, that would be even better because then I'd be able to mm -hmm. actually live out what we're talking mm -hmm. about here. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't really buy that argument. I, you, if if you want to say that you're thankful for the safety that our military brings, sure. In a sense, I guess I am thankful for that. I, I am able to have a little more comfort because of that. Um, but then again, the the U.S. military is not defending me from people who are part of my kingdom. The U.S. military is defending me from people who are part of the same fallen system of darkness. And so God is is using 
sovereignly using the United States military to control the chaos that the kingdom of darkness creates. Uh, and, and he's letting evil self-destruct in a sense. He's, he's using evil to control evil so that mm-hmm. there still are humans left <laughs> who can even proclaim the gospel and, and follow his teachings. Um, so yeah, in a sense, I'm, I'm, I guess the way I would phrase it is I'm thankful that God uses the evil that the United States military does in order to, to curb other evils. And, and many times he uses other nations' military to curb the evil that the U.S. military would do. Um, but I am yeah. thankful that he sovereignly does that. I am not thankful that humans are rebelling against God and doing that. But I am thankful that God sovereignly uses their rebellion, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I think that's that's an important distinction, Titus. Just the the whole thing and bringing it back to the whole radical love idea is that we believe that Jesus told us not not to just sit and do nothing, but not to use violence either, but to actually move towards our enemy in love, to actually lay down our lives. Like like you said, that's our greatest honor because we actually get to follow Jesus the 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 path that Jesus walked, which was laying down his life for the good of all men. Um, and so it, it's not, yeah, it's, it, 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 that's a really big statement to make though, because, you know, like, like was pointed out, you know, it, it's fairly easy to say at, at this point, you know, we're currently right now, we're all safe in America. Now I know we've all gone out, we've all risked, risked our lives um, to a certain degree or other um, for the gospel. But sitting here in America, it's easy to to say, um, yeah, you know, laying down our my life would be the greatest honor. Um, but but that that's actually what we're saying, and 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 um, and and by God's mercy, we when the time comes, we will live that out, and we will lay down our lives um, for our enemies. Um, yeah, Reagan, did you have a thought? I mean, yeah, I, I just have a feeling people listening to this podcast are going to be like, yay, woohoo, you you idealistic people that are, you know, I mean, sure, it sounds good sitting right. in your comfortable studio saying these things. Um, but I think it's worth noting that there are believers all over the globe that live this out every day, yeah. and it's yeah. not unusual at all. Like, what we're describing is yeah. not an anomaly by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. Um I mean, I, yeah, I've met many, many people who are, have, have lost, you know, loved ones because they laid down their lives for, for an enemy or they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't fight back. They wouldn't take a life. Um, and so, yeah, I want to make sure our audience realizes that like, this is not some theoretical, oh, you know, if that moment would come, no, like this is real. Like this happens to people every day Yeah. and, and there's, and you know, I mean, sometimes it is hard to understand, like, how, how could it be that, that that's okay, that these people would die because they, they believe this and they wouldn't fight back. But, um, you know, and, and we don't always have answers for those things. But what an incredible testimony, because you can't have one foot in this idealistic kingdom of God that we all want to live up to. I mean, who in the world doesn't want a peaceful existence? Like, everybody hates war, right? So that's the ideal. Right. 
But yet we still kind of want to have one foot over here that says, well, if it gets real bad, you know, maybe it'll be okay to cheer on the military so they can go shoot some bad guys. You can't have it both ways. And that's where it really comes back to the whole, even like voting or getting involved politically. For example, if if you vote in the next presidential election, okay, whatever, I'm sure there's people listening to this that are going to do that. Whoever you vote for, you just put mm -hmm. your name to that candidate saying, I support this person, this commander in chief, I, you know, I, I support that. Now, let's assume that that candidate drags America into a war. And then you're going to say, oh, I don't believe in, in killing people. Well, you just, you just said you put, you back that person. You can't pick and choose. So if you're going to adhere to a radical love following Jesus's way of, of nonviolence and yet still want to kind of use politics whenever it feels convenient that's just not going to fly it's not consistent at all and if you and if you have a, a jesus ethic you have to stay consistent or people who are not in christianity are going to call you out really fast and say now wait a second you don't believe in going to war mm -hmm. and yet you voted for the commander-in-chief and then when he calls you to go defend your country you say no uh, really you know you're not actually a non-resistant christian um so the, yeah, these things get pretty complicated, but that's that's kind of how I would how I would look at it. This isn't a bunch of hypothetical. This is real. Um, it, it's lived out yeah. by a lot of people yeah. every day. And you know, I think I think some of that is why perhaps we have a this um, a generation that has kind of become Republican Christianity is like it's been years. How many of us have a parent that was a conscientious objector? Do of us four? Do either of us have parents? I, I have a grandparent. No, it's our grandparents. I don't. Right? I don't believe so. Yeah, yeah grandparents. Um, there's some p friends of my parents, but they they're older. Um, and so like this, actually facing it for us as Americans is quite a ways away. But we had people, you know, our grandparents' generation lived this out, dealt with it. But I'm curious, one, one question that I had as just listening to all this and thinking, where does this, this is a sincere question, where does this dualism come from? This kind of, you know, yeah, we want this way, but it's, it's different for the government or, it's, or, you know, because listening to Reagan talk, the, the answer that I hear in my head is, well, it's, yeah, we know it's too fallen, not the best, but we're choosing the better of the not best. Um, where does that come from? Where, how did that creep in? Or maybe, maybe we don't have you know, we, anybody old yeah, enough. Yeah, I, I think to... it's really easy. Um, our generation has a problem with commitment. And when we say we're committed to Jesus, all of a sudden we realize, oh no, like that's actually really hard. And that requires mm. a lot of sacrifice. It, it just does. I mean, the stuff he lays out is is not easy. And it, it demands of you to live a certain way. And all of a sudden, people kind of backpedal. And they're like, oh, well, it, it's so much more convenient. You know, it, the millennials like their convenience. It just that's the way we operate. It's so much more convenient to just oh, just vote for that person who you think will will support your Christian values or whatever. And we're just not really we're so used to comfort. We're not used to, to facing up to like really hard stuff and say, you know what? Like truth really, really hurts sometimes. 
And it's not convenient, and it's going to make your life a lot harder, but it's worth doing even if you... Even if it doesn't look like a great option, it's what Jesus commanded us to do, and we just we need to do that, even if we don't understand. Um, if you're a believer, you don't have an excuse to not follow, but our generation's so used to just kind of having things their own way. Um, and like and like you said, Asher, you know, we don't have a recent time in our past where we had to face this stuff for real. Um, it, yeah, we just don't know what that experience is like, and and lack of experience, I think ignorance is is probably the biggest thing that's dragging us down right now, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think, actually, I think here, here again, like, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not saying this from, from a knowledge of having watched it happen because I'm not that old. Um, but I feel like this kind of dualism, um, this idea that, um, um, I forget how you phrased it, but, but the idea that, that military force is a, is an is a necessary evil or whatever um came you know came from the idea of like you know especially after world war 2 and after the holocaust um you know we saw pure evil on display um and and as as christians and and even just as humans we we saw that and we were we were we saw found that abhorrent you know we we walked through the concentration camps we walked walked through the and any and, and even watching you know communism rise up and, and realizing you know the evil that was going on in the in the behind the iron curtain and um within nazi germany and um and you know around the world wherever evil ideologies were taking place and and it and we kind of concluded probably as a culture and, and as Christians, um, not so much our Anabaptist fathers, but just American culture, Christian culture, um, kind of concluded that the only way to stop this is through the military. You know, that's how we stopped it in World War II, and that's how we're going to keep stopping it. And so, yeah, America has its problems, but look at all the good that it's done throughout history um and i mean even i I wish i i would have pulled the um the stats up right in front of me but but it's my understanding that that it's actually we're actually at a greater time of peace now than we ever have been in history even though there's all kinds of violence still happening in the world um there's actually less wars and there's less um um i mean yeah there's there's more terrorism and whatnot so it's a little bit different but um and I just think, I just think to kind of to wrap all of that up in, in one summary, I, I wanted to read a quote from um, theologian Don Carson, who I, I'm, you know, but I disagree with he, what I'm what I'm about to read from him. But I, I mean, no disrespect towards him as a theologian. I just I disagree with this quote. But he's saying, um, I forget what book this is from or, or where I got this quote. But he, he said, "Where an enemy is perpetrating its horrible holocaust." Is it not an act of love that intervenes even militarily to prevent that Holocaust if a nation has power to do so? And is not restraint in such cases a display not of loving pacifism, but of lack of love, of the unwillingness to sacrifice anything for the sake of others? Indeed, such a war may be, according to Kelvin, a a godlike act, since God himself restrains evil out of love for his creatures. Um, I, I have my own thoughts, but I'm, I'm curious what, what you guys would say to that. My my initial response to that is just like hearing that read, 
you hear the binary in that. Like you yeah. have to intervene with war or we're going to restrain any kind of intervention. And I immediately thought of, I think, um, uh, Reagan. there's a third way. There's a third way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought of the sermon by Val Yoder Reagan. I think you guys yeah, did it. On, I was just listening to um, it. standing in the way of evil. Yeah. And just that, what if we ourselves, rather than intervening yeah. in military, would get in and help out? We're not just yeah. restraining. Yeah. We're not no, just sitting I, back. I, I, I mean, yeah. wow. That quote, like, I get where he's coming from. I, I get it. I just think he's totally wrong. Yeah. The, it's not, it is not what Jesus outlined. It's just not. And, and Jesus is very clear. I mean, you can't, I don't see how it's possible to love someone while shooting them in the head. I, I just can't see that. There's people that have believed that. I had a, I mean, remember that Twitter conversation, Chris, uh, with that one guy? He truly believed that yeah. you, oh yeah, you can totally yeah. love someone and shoot them dead. And I'm just like, wow, like you just, I mean, <laughs> there goes their chances of ever becoming a believer. Let's start with that obvious fact. And yeah. and that's just yeah. not what we're told to do. But that does not mean we sit here in our comfortable lives and just like do our thing. That yeah. means mm -hmm. if we exactly. truly internalize yeah. that, that means we are going to be one of the most active people engaged with world issues, getting right there in the mud and in the thick and where it's nasty and dangerous and dirty and where people will die and we're going to be right there doing what Jesus did and following his example. If we do that, I I personally believe, and just from what I've seen, that is going to be way, way more effective than a military intervention. Now, you're going to lose some lives. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be safe at all. Mm -hmm. But, we, and, and even like an example like the Holocaust, you could even argue if the Church of Germany would have just stood up and said, no, we're not okay with this. You could have yeah. adverted, yeah. maybe not the whole yeah. thing, but you could have saved millions of lives. Yeah. But instead, they're like, no, let's pick up guns and shoot people, and then in what? the process, kill even more. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, you get into historical dilemmas and all that stuff, but you kind of see where I'm getting at. If if people actually grasp this and live it out, yeah, I would argue it would be enormously yeah. more effective than military intervention. Yeah. But the problem is we're not used to thinking like that. We're not used to yeah. Jesus's words actually being literal and actually being lived out radically and and we've, we've got to reorient our thinking to match with that yeah i love uh, yeah i love that you brought up um the whole thing of standing in the way of evil asher i was thinking about that as well and and like what would have happened if the church in germany it's it's so easy to criticize the the christians in germany let's just talk about ourselves but they're a long ways um, away yeah what what would have happened if the 1930s, 40s church in Germany would have stood up and said, if you're going to take these people and you're going to kill them, you're going to have to take us as well. If, if we would have stood in the way, if we would have stood in front of the guns, if we would have stood in front of the trains, in front of the concentration camps, and using that term like, metaphorically, if we would have gotten in the way, I mean, even literally, like gotten in the way of 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 the Nazis taking, I mean, it happened. It, it would have like, I, do, I, look I mean, at the I, historical yeah. evidence of the times when churches did stand up, which is very rare. But when it actually happened, thousands and thousands of lives were saved. There was a case in Bulgaria. It was the only, this is one of the very few cases where a church actually did this. But they pulled in the trains to load up the Jews because the Jews had fled to this town for safety. But then Germany ended up taking it over during the war. Mm -hmm. They're coming, they're hauling these people off to a death camp. And the church hears about this and the pastor says, over my dead body, he takes the villagers out and all the Christians surrounded that train. 
The pastor climbs up on the platform, t- talks to the SS commander, says, sure, we're here. Like, let's go. You're loading us up, too. And just see if you can fit us all on the train, basically. And he's like, and if you don't want to, he put the gun up to his forehead and said, pull the trigger. I dare, uh, basically, like, I dare you to. Like, we ain't, we are not scared to die for these people. And there was, like, people, like, standing on the track so the train couldn't go. Wow. And these, there's only, like, a few dozen SS officers. And they're like, wait, what, you know, what are we supposed to do now? They were kind of freaking out. And in the end of the day, I mean, it went on for a while where they just weren't sure what to do. They said, you know what? It's not even worth it. They just left. And no Jews in that entire area were ever killed. Thousands and thousands of lives were saved by that one church just saying, you know what? We're not okay with this. And we're willing to go to the, to the death camps with you, but we're not going to just let this happen. And, and that was just one church. Like, what if there was tens of thousands of churches in Nazi Germany? They all would have done that instead of hiding or instead of actually fighting with weapons. Like, how could have history been different? And, of course, we'll never know. But, wow, yeah. it's just like maybe Jesus was yeah. right after all, you know? I mean, shocker, yeah. but he actually knew what he was yeah. talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and a modern-day example, I think, um, is – I don't know if you guys read that recent article. I forget where it was from. Uh, maybe been, been his personal blog, but Randy Elkhorn and um, – Kind of his his history with he's actually been arrested like seven or eight times oh, for um, from from abortion clinics um, from protesting abortion clinics and I, I know this is going to open a, a whole nother can of worms but I I just you know I I think it's an example of somebody um, standing in the way of evil and and I think you know they him and his ministry have been sued and there's there's this. This whole just incredible story of how God has provided for them even through that lawsuit um, because an abortion clinic, I think, sued him for taking away customers, um, I think was what the problem was at the end of the day. But I think I think they would stand that, that I don't want to mis, misrepresent him because um, people have accused them of being like obnoxious and whatever. And and I, I think they've always been respectful. I think they've been gentle um, with their protests, but it's just the type of thing where they stand and they try to convince people to not get, a, get an abortion, you know, before they go, go into the clinic. And it's, it's so much so that, I mean, he's actually been arrested for it seven or eight times and he's been sued like several, like $2 million or a million and a half or something. Um, but, but that, you know, I just immediately thought of him when as a modern day example or you know even again you can criticize them you can you know we can have a whole other topic about immigration but like some of the churches that have have said um that they're gonna they're gonna house um immigrants you know so that ice can't come get them um even some um i'm trying to think of the example i I feel like uh, shane claiborne and some of his group um, you know, have done similar things just with protesting guns and whatnot. Well, you you bringing that up, I've got a prof who just invited me um to a. They're going to do a peaceful protest. I think is what it was called in their local town about the immigration, the the okay. what's going on at the border, and they're going to uh-huh. be in a mall, I think, and they'll have cages and stuff, and they're going to demonstrate what's going on and trying to. Trying to raise awareness, I guess. And 
So I, I was thinking about that too. Like what I didn't really, to me, to me, that doesn't feel really attractive because it doesn't feel like it really solves anything. But am I wrong on that? Like, is that, is that what I should be doing? Would that be I mean, doing protesting, protesting throughout history has been effective. Um, it's been effective in changing the minds of the nation. If, if you remember when MLK and, and his gang and his group walked across the, what was the bridge? The Selma Bridge. Yeah. Um, and they were beat up. You know, that, that had a profound impact on the nation. So I, I think it does, it is helpful in to, to really raise awareness for a certain cause. Um, but I, I would say that the sort of action that Reagan has been advocating, you know, maybe going down to the southern border and, you know, handing out food packages and blankets or, you know, helping out mothers who are considering an abortion probably is going to accomplish more than protesting. But I personally wouldn't have a problem with protesting also. I think, like, as I was thinking about and as you were talking, it kind of made sense too. I think what maybe what I differ on a little bit is he's, he would come at it from the perspective of we still try to influence government to help bring about. And so I, I can see, like, I agree with you, Titus, that protesting, there has been aspects of protests that, especially when it has to do with social issues that, um, that have been positive. But I guess, so, and maybe this, go for it. Uh, I was just going to say, that, I mean, this is going to complicate things more to get into this, but I would say that we we try we should try to change people's minds and influence them to obey the teachings of Jesus, whether or not they are currently Christians, um, mm-hmm. whether or not they're part of the government or not. So, if the and I would say that. I wouldn't have a problem with an anti-war demonstration either. Mm-hmm. So no matter what, no matter who the person is, whether they're a Christian or not, whether they're part of the government or not, I think we should actively do everything possible to try to convince them to follow the ethics of the kingdom of God. And I would say that would include trying to persuade people not to get abortions. I would say it would include trying to persuade the government not to separate families at the border, trying to persuade the government not to drop bombs. Um, I, I don't know that it, I would include trying to persuade the government to um, act violently to prevent abortions. I would say that would go against, or or to prevent anything <laughs> wrong, that would go against my convictions. Now, when the government does do that, I would say that's God sovereignly using them in, in a, a good way, but I wouldn't encourage the individuals to pursue those actions. So I would always encourage any individual, no matter who they are, no matter whether they're part of the government or not, to to follow the ethic of Jesus, because I believe the ethic of Jesus changes the world. And of course, we need repentance and faith and being filled with the Spirit and, and part of the, the church to to really change the world. But I would I I would try to influence culture regardless of whether they embrace Jesus as their savior. Yeah, I, I think I agree, kind of. But I want to put a little clarification there. The ethics of Jesus don't work if Jesus isn't in it. So 
So if you convince someone to live, you know, to live out these ethics, but they don't actually believe in Jesus or the kingdom of God, I don't see how that would ever work. Does that kind of make sense? Because we're still a fallen human being. We still need that core redemption that only comes through Jesus. And until that happens, it feels like it's going to be pretty hollow. I don't, I don't What do you guys sure. think? Sure. I, I had a one of my friends, um, actually from Followers of the Way in Boston, said that he recently had one of his atheist friends invite him to coffee and, and ask him advice about what to do because his son was transitioning to become a female and he just needed advice. And I thought that was a powerful example of, you know, the parable of the the, the tree, the, the kingdom of God is like a, a I think a must, maybe not a mustard tree, but some kind of tree that had the branches and the birds came and nested under the, the the branches. You know, the kingdom of God is so beautiful that that people can come and nest under its shade and, and get good advice for their lives, whether or not they are Christians. So, yeah, certainly <laughs> without regeneration, it's, it's not going to work. Um, however, I do think that the, the kingdom of God is, you know, kind of like, to borrow another parable, it's kind of like yeast working through the dough. It changes the culture and it changes people who are not even currently following Jesus. And that's where I think protesting could be helpful. Yeah. I think listening to you both, I'm going to clarify Reagan, who clarified <laughs> Titus. No, <laughs> um, no, I agree because I, I think um, absolutely, Titus, that we should be trying to influence everyone towards the way of Christ. And I also agree with Reagan that um, it's not going to work without Jesus being in the center. The cl- clarification or the question that I had in my mind is what do we call work and what is the what is the point um, in the sense that I believe God's design is best for everyone, then yeah, I do believe we should be trying to get everyone to, to follow the Jesus ethic when it comes to retaliating and responding to your enemies, whether they have personally put their faith in Jesus or not, because that's best. Like the God's, Jesus is God's design for sex is best for a family. And I, my friend, who has three kids on child support and has another one on the way and two different girlfriends and he's paying out the wazoo in child support and he's, his finances, his finances are strapped because of that. Like it would have been best if he just followed God's design for his sexual ethic financially. It would have been better for him, regardless of whether he put his faith in Jesus or not. And so there's this aspect of, yes, God's design is best for everyone. But then there's also this aspect of, like, I personally, it's, it's going, it's just going to be another, like, the, the redemption and the restorative work of Jesus Christ is an eternal work that changes not just today, but, and not even just tomorrow, but like for my eternity, where I spend the, the rest of my life and without that work of reconciliation in my soul, then it's just another great cause that I can be a part of. Um, my, I would argue is the best cause and kind of dovetailing on, on Reagan's clarification that like the, um, so what is work? What it's not going to work. What do we call it working? Is that like inner peace or just functioning? in the world 
I guess something that I thought of is we're going to end up defaulting to because the human default is self-preservation and self like pushing forward my agenda. What I feel safe is for what I feel. And so I might end up using Jesus's ethic for my agenda or my purpose. And there's going to be a lot of conflict that that would come in because Jesus's ethic calls us to deny ourselves. Um, but I agree that we should. We should, I think where I disagree, or I don't know if this is a disagreement, but I'd like clarification, Titus, um, from our conversation before. I don't know if I should bring that term up or not since it has, <laughs> but it's like the, the thing. The thing. Um, do we, how much time do we push? Go- so I, I get trying to influence government to not go to war or to not allow abortion or to not separate families at the border. But how much do I push a form of government that would function as if we were all Christians? Does that make sense? Does that question make sense? I, I think I understand what you're saying, and I it, it is sort of a conundrum. <laughs> um I would say that that viewing the government the way most conservative Mennonites do is more of a conundrum. Um, and and although I, I do see the scriptural backing for for that view, and, and what I mean by that is is kind of seeing the government as a positive thing, but just something we should not be part of. Um, I, I think there's scriptural scriptural backing for both positions. I would say that kind of philosophically and ethically. Um, I I don't understand how you could say that the government is good and and how and and still say that Christians should not be part of it. So mm. the way I the way I look at it is, I kind of disregard the government as an organization in a sense. Now, of course, we respect our leaders and pay taxes because that's obedience to Jesus. But viewing people differently, whether they're in the government or not. Um, it, I would say is sort of a dangerous thing to do. And so I would, I would encourage the people within the government to act in a ethical way, um, regardless of what their position is. And I don't think it's ethical to separate families. I don't think it's ethical to kill people. And so I'm, I'm going to encourage them not to do that. Now, when it would come to abortion, it's, it's a sticky issue. I would encourage the, the woman not to get an abortion because that's killing. Um, would I encourage the government to imprison her or threaten her with violence if she does it? Probably not, because I don't agree with violence. Now, if the government does do that and ends up saving the baby's life because they're enforcing the, a law against abortion, I would say, yeah, that's that's probably God sovereignly using a poor decision by an individual within the government to accomplish his purposes to save that child's life. Um, but But to me, it's not... And that brings up the question of when do we know when it's God sovereignly using them to do something right and when it's them doing something wrong? And that's the cool thing about it being in God's hands. Like I don't actually need to yeah, figure out yeah. when it when he's actually because that's it's and that's what's so messed up about humans trying to make that call when yeah. when it's just or not. Humans are flawed and they can never make the call when it's right to use use force or not. So that's kind of where I'm at. I don't know if I'm making sense or not. And I'm still figuring this out in my mind. You know, I'm not trying to debate you guys because it's just, it's something that I'm actively working through and trying to figure out how I can 
be consistent yeah. in my critique of violence. Yeah, no, that that makes sense to me. And I, yeah, I um have thought about that some too, especially since our conversation on it. Um, I don't, so let's go, we, we started out the episode, I think, talking about Romans 13. <laughs> so let's, yeah. Let's go like into what, it. where, where is that? Um, how does that play in God? You know, Romans 13, first of all, I think it, I, I brought up the whole thing earlier in the conversation. I don't know if that's going to stay in or not, but the, the Jesus speaking about loving our enemies is come to the tail end of talking about retaliation. And Romans 13 is a, is addressing the government's use of punishing um, evildoers. And so, I mean, we could get in a discussion there too. What, what is an evildoer? Obviously, I would assume Paul is talking about an evildoer being a, a evildoer according to God's ethic, not an evildoer according to America's ethic or, uh, they're the same, Asher. North Korea's ethic. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but America's, America. America good. Remember that? Oh, yes. I forgot. Yeah. Okay. Um, where 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 america gets it wrong where we often get it wrong is when we take in retaliation into our own hands um even the story of samson uh samson um gideon who like we all love and we love to tell that story but gideon actually ended on a sour note because he avenged beyond what god had told him to so Here's an example in the Old Testament where there's violence going on. God seems to command. I mean, he told Gideon and he helped him slaughter these people, kill these people. Actually, they may have killed themselves. I'm forgetting the story. But, um, <laughs> they killed themselves. <laughs> but if you follow the story, like Gideon then goes and exacts vengeance beyond what God had said. So there's always this barrier, even in the Old Testament, there's this, there's this barrier that God wants people to act within. Um, and then you have people who go beyond that, and then they, God deals with them beyond that. So we need to be careful. This is just for free aside. We need to be careful that we don't blame God for stuff that is human's fault. Um, but yeah, where, where is the, what is the role of government? What is evil doing look like? What is using the sword? I, I question the, like, what was Paul envisioning when he says that? Is he envisioning the death penalty? But then, I mean, the word is, the sword, the word sword is used, so it, it must be something kind of violent. What are you guys' thoughts on? Yeah, let's just, let's just jump into Romans 13 here. Let me, um, read a few of the verses just for context. Um, for there is no authority, this is Romans 13, like verse 1, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist has have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he has he for he does not bear the sword in vain, talking about the government, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. 
For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. I recant all my views. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but but the historical context of that, you know, Paul is talking about Nero in that passage. And nobody is yeah. going to argue that Nero's ethic was in alignment with what yeah. Jesus wanted. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. I mean, he was lighting people on fire for entertainment, you know. Um, yeah. And this is where I think we're getting into the two kingdom concept a lot. So when Jesus is on trial under Pontius Pilate, Pilate says, hey, I have the power to kill you right now. And Jesus doesn't correct him. It, Pilate did have the authority to kill him. I mean, like, there is an amount of power there that he had. And, you know, I'm not sure, you know, we don't know all God's designs for this, but it does show there are two very distinct kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God, and its ethics are what we have to adhere to because we're followers of that. But then you have the kings of this world, and they are operating in a completely different dimension. That's that's why the church, if it's really following Jesus, doesn't make sense to the governments that are hosting the, those people. So, like that's why Romans, or that's why the Roman people hated the Christians so much because it just didn't make sense. Like they wouldn't swear allegiance to the emperor, for example, and a bunch of other things. But yet, at the same time, the Romans knew you wanted the Christians on your side because they were such good people. They were they were so good to the people around them, and they wouldn't kill anybody or steal and that kind of thing. And I think, honestly, for me, the only way to understand Romans 13 is to keep those two things separate. Uh, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. And those two things can't mix because they are so completely incongruent. Even from a logical perspective, they just don't make sense to try to mush those together. Um, and I wonder if that's a little what Paul is getting at. And and our responsibility as believers is still to come under that authority. I mean, we all hold U.S. US citizenship, so we are, you know, we have to, to respect that um, and those laws and whatever our country has decided. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, our citizenship is not anything on this planet. Um Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I struggle with this passage a little, but I think that's about the only way you're going to be able to untangle it because nobody's going to argue that Paul is talking about a righteous ruler um, by any means. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also incomplete for us just to read. I mean, I don't we don't have to read the whole pet passage. Did you read the whole passage? No. I forget. I just read like the the juicy part. But like the. uh <laughs> The section right before that juicy part and the section right after that juicy part is talking about living out love. Are also juicy. Yeah, they're <laughs> juicy. <laughs> and so I think it's incomplete when we just yeah, chop that's true. chop out a little section and then try to make an excuse that and we, we've kind of alluded to some of these themes. But like, if we're going to understand the Bible, we got to look at the whole scope of things and you weigh like the evidence if there's a big stack of evidence for this posture and then just a few little phrases here, we're going to hold these a lot more lightly and like, man, there's a lot of mystery there, but this is all pretty clear, right? And so as you walk through the teachings of Jesus and you get even to the apostles, there's so much 
stacking evidence of we walk in love and we lay down our lives. We don't, we don't retaliate against our enemies, but we love them. We actively move towards them in love, even when it's sacrificing our own life. And then there's these small little sections like the first six verses or seven verses of Romans 13 that make it mysterious. And we're not entirely sure what all Paul's talking about, but then he goes on the end of his, was it? Yeah, the end of that chapter, he's talking about how we fulfill the law through love. Um, and so I think, yeah, I guess I would just say, like, I don't entirely know what all Paul is referring to. I agree with Reagan that I don't think at all Paul is trying to somehow justify what Nero did. Um, I also don't think that Paul is writing something that is only strapped to that time and place in history. Like, this is something that's that's relevant for us today. But it's somehow important for us in living out love. Like our position as Christ followers is to live out love. Those, especially those um, previous verses actually really do speak to um, what we're talking about um, in Romans 12 to, to pay no one evil for evil, but give, thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all um, to as far as it depends on you live peaceably never avenge yourselves leave it for the wrath of God give to those who are hungry if your enemy is hungry feed him if he is thirsty give him something to drink for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head which is kind of a graphic thing to do do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good um, that's metaphorical burning coals of fire <laughs> It's also interesting, that's in Romans 12, really? right? What you're yeah. reading. It's also interesting that when he says, do not avenge yourselves, that's the exact same Greek word used to describe what the government is supposed to do hmm. in Romans 13. Hmm. It says he's an avenger. Hmm. So hmm. it's clear that, that and, and it's interesting, in Romans 12, he says, do not avenge yourselves for it is written, it is mine to repay, or God is saying, mm-hmm. I'm the reason you don't avenge yourself is because I'm gonna do that. And then you're wondering, okay, God's gonna do it. How's he gonna do it? Go into Romans 13. This is how God mm-hmm. brings mm-hmm. vengeance. He brings it through the state. And but that is not what Christians should do. And I don't think, I mean, not to beat a dead horse here, but I don't think it's 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 even right for those non-Christians to do that, but God will use them to bring that vengeance that he calls us not to bring as as his followers. Yeah. Yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we're ever going to be able to completely figure it out in one episode. Yeah. And I, I like what somebody said either, I forget if it was this episode or the last episode, but um, the whole the whole idea of using the clearer parts of scripture to help interpret the less clear parts of scripture. And, um, I mean, obviously that's going to change from culture to culture, from generation to generation. Like some passages are going to seem clearer than others. But, um, I think at the end of the day, we, we kind of have to hold this somewhat as a mystery. And, and we, we can know, I think, from scripture that for the Christian, there is a fairly clear ethic. Um, fairly clear standard that Jesus calls us to. Um, yeah, it's kind of fleshing that out, you know. And I, I'd love, I'd love to get 
your guys' thoughts on um, William Wilberforce and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and, and all that stuff, what that looks like, and, and, and if you know what you would do if you were in their positions. But we are running out of time for this episode. Um, thank you guys for listening. Did you guys have anything to add that you kind of wanted to, to wrap up this conversation with? Well, I was just looking at this passage a little bit more, again, Romans 13, and just... Like you take the historical context of a a violent dictator, insane, basically insane, had lost his mind, and and I, you know, obviously, just kind of piecing these things together. So there's not I haven't done a lot of historical study on it yet, but Paul seems to be almost trying to reassure Christians who might be tempted to rebel against the government because of how crazy this guy is. Paul seems to be trying to assure him that rulers are for good. Like, you could almost hear him, obviously it's not said here, but just, like, calm down. Like, if this ruler was walking within God's design, he would be um, retaliating against evil, avenging evil, and protecting those who are good. Whereas a lot of people end up using this passage from a perspective, we don't have a crazy lunatic in government, um, but rather is trying to justify like our, our building up a government and our involvement in politics and so forth. And so it's, it, it feels like if, like we, we really ought to remember the, I don't know if you call it historical or political environment around us as we interpret it. Yeah. Were you laughing, Christopher, when he said that we don't have a crazy lunatic in government? <laughs> I was thinking there's probably some sort of leftist Trump joke in there somewhere. Well, so far he hasn't elected his horse to Senate, so. Yeah, and he, yeah. There's, there's, I mean, if people are honest with themselves, there's no comparison between, between Trump and. But that would make. Those evil yeah, that would make an amazing discussion, though, because, yeah, anyway. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, I think we should probably call it a wrap for this episode. Um, and it's, like I said, it's definitely not the last episode. There's much more to come. We haven't, we haven't even reached the tip of the iceberg yet. We're still kind of discovering the iceberg that it's even there. <laughs> we have yet to even en encompass the whole thing. But, um, yeah, thank you guys so much for listening along with us. Um, thanks Asher and Reagan and Titus for, for being willing to be a part of this discussion. I hope if nothing else that we've, um, prodded some thinking, um, and, and get the conversation rolling. Um, yeah. Thanks again also to the brilliance for allowing us to use their song brother for our theme song. Yeah. We'll see you guys next time.